Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Marking the Roll. This is episode 30 um, and this is season 6 of Marking the Roll. And there's been some big changes in education promised in Australia. Uh, the move from discovery learning to explicit and direct instruction, which is the topic of today's episode. Big changes in the university sector where universities are going to be expected to be accountable for what they teach the students and perhaps refund money when the students haven't learnt anything or they can't get a job. That's pretty impressive. So Jason Clare um, from the Federal Government, Minister for Education, is making some big steps. Not all will be popular, there's no doubt about that, but there's going to be some big changes. And teachers out there, you may have already discovered that things are a little bit different and the mood is a little bit better. Now, before we move on to direct and explicit instruction, I wanted to prepare you for the next episode, episode 31, which will uh, look at the teacher's role in uh, this entire gender transitioning of students and how a teacher can protect themselves from legal action. Um, A teacher in New Zealand has been sacked because they refused to use the preferred pronouns of a student. Now, um, teachers don't want to get sacked. They want to keep their job. Many teachers are ethically very um, compromised by all this. So we'll be looking at how teachers can keep their job, what they have to do, what they should not do. And I'll be after any experiences that you've had. You can just email me with experiences about this to markingtherole at substack.com. Markingtherole at substack.com. It'll be anonymous, of course. There'll be no names mentioned whatsoever. Um, So if you've had experiences with this, if you've had a difficult time um, uh, with, with your own ethics, if you've had a difficult time with parents or with uh, students um, and you don't quite know what to do, just drop us an email, uh, markingtherole at substack.com. Yes, it's a touchy area. I don't expect anyone to use their real voice um, to send us a recording. So just scribble it down as an email uh, and send it to us uh, just so that we can get a gauge as to what teachers are experiencing out there with all of this. But today, looking at uh, direct instruction, you're going to be hearing um, from a couple of teachers, uh, teachers from Blue Haven Public School, uh, teachers from uh, the Cohen uh, School in Cape York, um, and also Greg Ashman. Uh, about direct instruction. You're going to hear uh, some some um, initialisms, DI, which is direct instruction, uh, EDI, explicit direct instruction. So you're going to be hearing these terms. Now, if you're um, under the age of 35, say, a teacher under the age of 35, you never would have heard these probably because you were educated uh, in discovery learning in a much softer form of learning. Whereas direct instruction is more definite, it is often scripted, the teacher reads or learns from a script and has to repeat certain things from the script, Um, and that hasn't been taught for a long time. 
It's actually the way that I learned to teach back um, in the 70s. Um, We were all taught about explicit and direct instruction, although it wasn't called that back then. Um, So this is not going to suit every teacher. And I know some of the comments are going to be that this is relevant for primary school, but it's not relevant for high school. Well, I'm going to be honest, I've never seen it working in primary school. I've never seen it because when I was working for Macquarie University as a tertiary supervisor, going into schools and looking what the student teachers were doing, um, no one ever used explicit and direct instruction because they weren't taught that. But I have seen it working in a high school environment in the UK, in the Michaela School, and it worked just beautifully. The students knew what they were um, in for. Um, The teachers certainly knew what they were doing and how the class was going to go, how the lesson was going to go. And it worked very, very well. So I know that's going to be one of the comments, um, but we'll see if we can get through that um, when we're talking um, with a couple of the guests. Now, Greg Ashman. Greg Ashman teaches physics and mathematics at an independent school in Ballarat. He's the author of The Power of Explicit Teaching and Direct Instruction, uh, he's a researcher and a PhD. He runs a substack called Filling the Pale, which is excellent, and I do recommend that to teachers. And I thought, well, if anyone can give us some background about direct instruction and what it's all about, it's Greg. Greg, good to talk to you again. Good to talk to you, Phil. What is direct instruction, and, and how does it differ to how teachers are doing their job now? Um, it's, it's Direct instruction is an ambiguous term, um, there is a series of programs that was developed uh, in the late 1960s, early 1970s, uh, which are scripted um, and were developed with a very specific um, set of ideas behind them. And they are often referred to as direct instruction, capital D, capital I, um, and they were developed by Zig Engelman and his colleagues. Um, they were very successful in um, the largest uh, education experiment of all time, Project Follow Through, where um, basically the uh, Johnson uh, government in the US, the Johnson administration, they wanted to um, th- they wanted to uh, take the funding that they'd um, put into early years and um, in, and put that funding forward into the into further years of schooling, and so they called it. Uh, follow through because they're following through on on early care and they ran it as a different as a, as a series of experiments with different providers uh, providing the education in different settings direct instruction was one of the providers and it outperformed all the others on um on on various measures that were collected including like things like self-esteem and some programs were designed specifically to raise self-esteem um, and direct instruction, though it wasn't designed specifically to do that, outperformed those programs that were designed to do so. And what about direct instruction with a, a small d and a small i? Um, direct instruction with a small d and a small i um, tends to refer to uh, a series of practices that came out of the teacher effects research of the 1960s. Um, and that that is what basically people looked at what effective teachers did. So they looked at teachers whose uh, students made the biggest uh, gains um, and they looked at what they did in the classroom and they came up with this um, series of uh, uh, dot points really uh, variously called direct instruction explicit instruction active teaching they're all synonyms really and what they mean is that the teacher is very active uh, the teacher fully explains 
new concepts and ideas and procedures before the students are asked to use them um, and then guides the practice so uh, these classrooms are highly interactive with students constantly being called on to respond to the teacher most of the students most of the time having to do that um, and that's what we tend to refer to when we're uh, talking about explicit instruction those practices have also been validated by later research um, by little uh, uh, randomized control trials in um, in classroom settings and by um, theories about how the the, the brain learns um, academic knowledge so it, there's a very robust body of evidence that sits behind it it sounds like exactly the the way that I learned to teach back in the early 70s yeah so it's a return to some of that old school way which produced great results why is there opposition to it now um, there's been opposition to it for hundreds of years. Um, so even in the early 70s when you were doing that, there would have been people in education departments who thought it was an appalling thing to do. Um, because there's a tradition in education um, called educational progressivism. And uh, basically it's a it's a, an offshoot of uh, romantic philosophy. It views children as um, as pure and innocent and um, it, the world around them as corrupt and corrupting. So the thing to do is to take students and put them in as natural a setting as possible, and then they'll gradually figure things out for themselves, save from the corrupting influence of the world. Um, this is the philosophy behind things like whole language, um, literacy instruction, where rather than actually teach kids how to decode words and what the letters, um, were, what sounds the different letters were coding for, which is all too very too technical and and boring, what we should do is just surround kids with books, read to them lots, and they'll just sort of pick it up. But it's um, unfortunately, it's a it's a nice romantic idea. It underpins a lot of ideas as well about behaviour management. But it's false. It's not based in reality. It's not based in how the mind works. Now, educational academics largely, not exclusively, but m most in the socio-cultural um, tradition, uh, subscribe to some extent to this philosophy of progressivism. Um, and so they're very resistant to anything that involves adults taking, taking control and explaining things or telling things to students because, of course, those adults are the embodiment of the corrupting adult world. When I was at the Michaela School and I witnessed um, a teacher teaching uh, in a direct instruction manner, um, the teacher was out the front of the class. The teacher was certainly in a powerful position and, and was instructing the class, was actually getting feedback from the class. It was constantly go, go, go. Um, and it reminded me of, of everything that universities now don't teach. Um, so this is a return really to the teacher being in front and in control of the class. Is that right? Absolutely, because the assumption is that the teacher knows more about the thing that they're teaching than the students do. Um, You'd hope and, so. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, uh, well, that's what we want, isn't it, really? We want to employ teachers that didn't. And the thing is, there's two ways that uh, individuals can gain knowledge. One is from someone else, uh, and two is to figure something out themselves. So by doing a little experiment, figuring out what works. Sometimes we have to do the latter because we haven't got any options. So when I was doing my PhD research, no one had actually done the experiment that I wanted to do. So I couldn't look up the, the results. And so I had to do the experiment myself and, and find out what was going on. But these are the limits of human knowledge. Um, most of the time, we can get the information that we need from someone else. And as a species, we're pretty much unique 
in our ability to do that. Certainly, we're unique in the amount of information that we can acquire from others. Um, so it's our superpower, really. So the idea that we should somehow not do that, not use that superpower in classroom settings because uh, of some sort of uh, philosoph philosophical reasons is is really quite absurd, and it doesn't it it, it, it doesn't play to our strengths as a species, if nothing else. And also, it's it's more time consuming to work it all out yourself, whereas Hugely if you can afford it, um, you'll get it all done in your twelve years of education. Well, but if you're going to do it the other way, you'll take twenty. Well, it's hugely inefficient to do, to do it that way because there's so many different possible paths you can go down. Whereas if someone explains it to you, um, it's like trying to, you know, uh, find your way around a city um, without a map or anything else. And you've got to try all the different roads. Whereas if someone says go right at the church and then uh, turn left at the traffic lights, you don't have to try all the other routes. So it is far more efficient to acquire that knowledge from someone else. Now, I remember when I was a tertiary supervisor at Macquarie University reading in a student's notes, the lesson notes, that it's better to be a guide on the side than a sage on the stage. Obviously, they'd got that from somewhere else. Um, well, direct instruction and explicit direct instruction is the complete opposite of that. Um, so the ways that a teacher has been taught in the past 20 years in Australia is this way that it's better to be a guide on the side than a sage on the stage. Well, we're going back to the sage on the stage stuff where the teacher is in control. The teacher knows what what they need to teach. They have the information and they have a script often to um, teach the students. Now, what do some of the teachers say about direct instruction. Here's some teachers from the Cohen campus, which is inside the Cape York Aboriginal Australian Academy. You notice that when you come into a DI room, everything's structured and, and you know every minute of their learning is accounted for, which is really beneficial because you, you, know, you make the most of that time that you have with the students and you know that every single minute you have them in the room, you've got them engaged and you've got them learning. You get that full sense of urgency when you walk into a DI room that you're really pushing these students for mastery. You're really trying to get the most out of the students while you have them at school. Starting over, word one on my signal. What word? Sensitive. Word two. What word? I'm so much more engaged with the kids. I know exactly where every single one of my kids are at in literacy and numeracy because I do so much assessment. The data collection is fantastic. It's so easy to track and it's so nice because none of our kids get left behind. So you might have heard then that there's lots of uh, calling back to the teacher. Um, the teacher asking the questions, the whole class answered back. Now, for this to take place, there has to be a standard of behaviour in the class. Uh, and when I've witnessed this in secondary school in the UK, there is very strict discipline in the class. And if a student um, does something uh, that's not expected and not wanted in the class by the teacher, in other words, talks to the person next to them, they can get demerits and they can get detentions and all that sort of thing. So, yes, there has to be strict behaviour in the class. And I know a lot of teachers saying, oh, well, that won't work in my school because, um, you know, that's impossible to get in my school. Well, you'd be surprised at how well students 
adapt to it because it sets a boundary for them. And a lot of these students are really searching for a boundary to be in because they don't get the boundaries at home, but they search for a boundary where they can succeed at school. What do odd numbers end in everybody? One, three, five, seven, nine. So again, what odd? One, three, five, seven, nine. Let's read this column. Loving, loving, outrage. What an And that was some teachers from Blue Haven School in New South Wales. Now, I know some teachers will be saying, well, I already do that. Uh, and that's terrific, because you'll be expected to do a lot more of it. Uh, and some teachers are saying, wow, they've got to be a bit of a performer when they're teaching. Well, that's actually part of a teacher's job, is to engage them and to be enthusiastic. Get the, te- get the students um, calling back. Um, get them interested in the subject. So yes, you do have to be a bit of a performer and in that way, it's not going to suit every single person. But then again, you can do a mix, I guess, of of, um, discovery learning and direct instruction if you don't feel like uh, DI or direct instruction is completely your bag. Back to Greg Ashman. When I was at the Michaela School and I was watching teachers teach, um, it seemed that they were very, very confident, these teachers. Um, they were in some ways a bit of a performer. Um, they were always funny as well. Um, do you think every teacher is cut out to do this? Because my experience uh, as a tertiary supervisor at Macquarie Uni was that these teachers simply aren't capable of doing it. Um, I think more. Uh, I think teachers are capable of teaching using explicit teaching but i don't think uh, i don't think it's it suits everybody um but i think um it needs to be taught like everything else it's this idea that there are natural teachers who can just do it and ones that can't again underestimates humans and human nature our ability to learn things and, and learn strategies from each other is huge so if you've got an experienced teacher saying well this is what you do this is how you engage the students this is how you make it funny this is how you get them to look at you. Other teachers can pick up those techniques and they can learn them and they can become um, the kinds of teachers that you saw. I certainly started off with less um, skills in that area than I have now. Um, but yeah, there is a limiting point where some people um, probably don't really um, have um, the ability to, to, to do that. But often in, in those cases, those people don't really want to be teachers anyway. So I think there's a, there's a self-selecting element to that. Uh, for the teachers listening, can, they don't need to actually do all of their lessons in this style. They can slowly start to incorporate um, a direct instruction method into their day, I would assume. It doesn't yeah, have yeah, to be all in, does it? No, absolutely. And also things like we, we, when we talk about uh, direct instruction or explicit teaching, we tend to focus on the, the performance of the teacher, and that is important. It's what people think of the teacher in front of him explaining things. But uh, as as important uh, is the what the students are doing. And so, if you come into my classroom, much as you saw at Michaela, all the, all the kids will have mini whiteboards. I'll ask a question. I'll expect all the students to answer on their mini whiteboards and hold the answer up. So this means that students can't be looking out the window or not paying attention because they've got, they're being called on constantly every couple of minutes. To, to give me an answer to a question that I'm asking, but also it shows me whether they can do it or not. So 
we have an 80 percent um, rule where basically you want at least 80 percent of the students to be able to give you the correct answer back otherwise you probably need to go back and re-explain what you what you're doing because they haven't really understood it now that's a really important part of explicit teaching this is what distinguishes it from lecturing because it's not one way it's uh, it's an interaction um, and so introducing those sorts of routines is, is as, as important as thinking about standing at the front and how you're going to explain something. Marking the Roll is supported entirely by subscribers and donors who get two non-public podcasts per year, as well as other treats. The cost is $35 per year yet if two people join there's a 30% discount. Just select the group subscription option for you both to subscribe for $22. Thanks for listening and please consider getting a friend to subscribe with you to get the 30% discount. You may have noticed there was no coffee cup mentioned there. We've discovered that making or getting the coffee cups printed and mailing them out costs more than the cost of a subscription. (laughs) So we thought that that wasn't very good business. Um, I then asked Greg Ashman what the impact was of direct instruction on the culture of the school um well uh, it's uh, that's a big question um i think people that say michaela i've been to michaela myself i went there recently actually um and um when people look at a school like that the culture has been really thought through so it's not so much the impact of the teaching on the culture more the impact of you have to build a culture in which you can teach in that way. So students need to know um, what the what, what they're supposed to do when they come into the classroom. There needs to be um, a, a set of routines. People think of this as quite authoritarian, but often it's not. If, you, if the students go into a classroom and know that as soon as they get into the classroom, they get out their book, they start doing the starter task, they, they, they get their pens out, they get their homework out ready to be checked, all of those things, because it's a routine and it's a habit, they don't need to think about it. And so they can think more about the content, that the, the, the science or the history or the English literature or whatever it is that you want them to think about. Whereas if they're going around a, a classroom and every teacher has different standards, has different expectations, they're going to spend quite a lot of their cognitive uh, processing on sort of remembering that and figuring that all out. And, you know, and in the classrooms where the teachers aren't in charge, they've got to work out their relationship to the other students in the room and who, which of those students is the alpha and uh, who they have to be deferential to and, you know, and all that sort of stuff. Whereas in a, in a school like Michaela, where the, 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 the culture is very thought through and there is a routine for everything. Um, they literally freeze kids up to think about the content. And uh, discipline and behaviour management is a pretty big part of the success of direct instruction. Would you say that? Um, not necessarily. I don't think it's inherent to, but the schools, like, if you, I'll put it the other way around. If you've got chaos in the classroom, you're not going to be able to teach using explicit teaching. Um, and uh, the, the, the disdain for uh, behaviour management um, comes from the same romantic tradition, you know, the idea that children are uh, inherently good and it's the adult world that's bad. And so if children are misbehaving, it's not because they're uh, lazy or bored or jealous or any of the, the things, the reasons why adults might misbehave. It's because they're trying to tell us something about the fact that we're not meeting their needs in some way. And so when you subscribe to that philosophy, you don't want to tell kids off or you don't want to discipline them in any way because what you want to do instead, you want to listen to what it is they're trying to tell you. Well, of course, when you've got a classroom full of 30 kids 
and there are some students misbehaving there just isn't really time for all this listening to what the children are trying to tell you you've actually got to take charge in some way and of course they find that incredibly liberating a lot of the kids the the, the guides that took me around Michaela, i said well how's this different to your primary school and they said well there's no bullying um because it's so strict and because um the 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 that that's how they would describe it i suppose and um, there's the, they don't get bullied there's no misbehavior and they can relax and be themselves and just focus on what they're trying to do i don't know about you but i know that michaela's got this reputation for being very strict and for having detentions and all this sort of stuff when i w visited i didn't see a single member of staff uh, disciplining a single student why because everyone knew what they're supposed to be doing and they did it and they got on with it um, and that's what happens when you build the right kind of culture. Exactly right. The students know their boundaries. They actually feel yeah. safe within those boundaries. Um, and because they feel safe, they, they really want to do it. Um, exactly. And the parents are also thrilled with this. And by the way, for listeners, Michaela is not in a wealthy area. It it doesn't have, you know, kids from what, what in Australia we'd be calling private school backgrounds. Um, and it really does extremely well as far as uh, the measurement of, of learning goes. Absolutely. We're talking about some of the most deprived uh, kids in London. Yep, yep. Now, some of the criticisms are that it, 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 it focuses on the teacher control of the lesson pacing and doesn't encourage engagement with student cultural resources and, and their background knowledge and community context, all lovely ideas, and it doesn't engage with that. Um, is that a valid criticism? No. I mean, if you want students to learn about... Um local cultural contexts then the best way to do that is about is the best way to learn anything else and that's by explicit teaching so you need the teachers to know this stuff uh, or and or to learn it or someone in the um in the school to to have that knowledge and then you need to teach it explicitly if you want to teach if you want students to be more aware so if you want um students from a christian heritage background to be more aware of um what their uh, muslim peers believe then you need to teach that to them explicitly um, there's no conflict there the other thing that people often say is you know well this is all very well for teaching basic skills they sort of they run down like the idea that uh, these complicated academic concepts that we're trying to get students to learn are somehow very basic skills is a very is a misnomer but anyway that's what they'll say they'll say explicit teaching is okay for teaching these basic skills but if you want to do something more highfalutin like uh, critical thinking or creativity or you need something else there's no evidence to suggest that um one of my favorite studies is a little study of um uh, it was it's science it's middle school students learning science and what they wanted to teach these students is the need to control variables in, a, in an experiment it's a really important scientific idea and they randomly assigned uh, students to one of two groups in one group they're explicitly taught about um about um controlling variables and in another group the, the, there was a classic discovery type activity where they were supposed to figure this principle out for themselves well the first thing that happened of course is that the more of the kids who were explicitly taught the idea learned it fewer of the kids who were in the discovery condition learned the idea but then they did something really important they then asked all these students who had learned the concept to evaluate some science fair posters so they you know science fair posters typically describe an experiment and some of these posters described experiments where the variables have been controlled and some did not and those students who had learned the principle by discovery were no better at evaluating these science po fair posters than the students who'd been explicitly taught the principle the idea that somehow 
um, you learn it better if you discover it for yourself uh, is is a bit of a bit of a false notion, really. And what you really want, if you want to be able to think critically, if you want to be able to be creativity, you need a, a foundation of knowledge, just a, a wide, deep, strong foundation of knowledge. And we know the most efficient, efficient and effective way of developing that is through explicit teaching. Yeah, one of the criticisms of students who are probably in their twenties now and who just or who have just left high school is that because they haven't been taught by a so-called expert, because the teachers have not been regarded as experts in what they're teaching, then they come out um, not confident in what they have learnt. So they don't feel like an expert has taught them something, so they're not very confident, and they try and work their own way around things. Um which is one of the reasons what the students today have trouble arguing a point or, or looking at the facts, is that because they haven't been taught what a fact really is and what is real. Um, do, do you have anything to say about that? I often give an example. A few years ago, um, I had two things happened to me. First of all, the toilet flush broke. So I had to get uh, one of these universal flush things and fit it to the toilet and I, I got it from bunnings and the instructions on it weren't very good and i essentially had to discovery learn how to fit <laughs> this thing to the, the toilet yeah. and i spent the next week or so worrying that the the bathroom was going to flood because i wasn't sure if i'd done it right now have, would I, have I did i learn that better did i learn how to fit flushes to toilets better than if i'd had an experienced plumber stood next to me explaining all the bits what they did where where that to go why that to go there of course i didn't um it was a it was a very suboptimal solution so um this it and it seems didn't give it, you confidence did it i mean you you were not no, confident about it no not at all so and this is what happens often when kids do discover these principles like if they do somehow figure out the the relationship between letters and sounds themselves they're still likely to make lots of have lots of misconceptions and make lots of errors yeah. which could be avoided if an experienced teacher had simply taught it to them yeah 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 and an experienced teacher who has the knowledge um Absolutely. You know, we're not going to work something out if someone like uh, einstein can actually look us in the eye and say this is how it is now yeah, absolutely a, a final criticism is that it places the teacher and the, and the child in a a rigid relationship where the teacher is the one with the power and knowledge <laughs> well, I say, well, that's that's not a criticism. That that's a great thing. Um, so, who are these people criticising this because of power relationships in a classroom? It reminds me again of Foucault back in the in the nineteen eighties. But is that stuff still around? Yeah, it's the same uh, progressivist base. So you can trace it back to the Romantic tradition. You can trace it back to Rousseau. Uh, in the 60s, you've got this spin um, uh, based on um, sort of uh, left-wing politics. Uh, there's a guy called Paolo Friari who was involved in educating um, peasants in literacy in Brazil, and he wrote The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And so he framed all of this into in terms of oppressors and oppressed in a way that um, people would be quite familiar with if they're a student of uh, modern identity politics, that basically you've got these people in the world who are the oppressors and you've got these people who are the oppressed. And then they map that onto teaching and they say, oh, well, the teachers are the oppressors and the students are the oppressed. And so we need to radically disrupt that. We need to put the students in charge, give them agency, etc. Otherwise, we're going to be 
recreating um, this anti-democratic authoritarian way of going about things. I mean, it's just, it's nonsense, really. It's, it's, um, it's taking um, ideas from the political realm and applying them essentially to a technical issue um, without really thinking, well, is it appropriate? Is it effective? Is how are we going to educate these students if we take this, if we decide that teachers are oppressors and we take them out of the equation? And you know, how is how are the students going to figure out how to educate themselves? It's politically driven, um, and but you know, it's it also fails on its own terms because, of course, if you don't actually educate kids uh, to read and write and be literate and to know things about the world, then they're not going to um, be in the vanguard of the next re- revolution because they won't know enough to be so. And that was Greg Ashman. Greg is a teacher at Independent School in Ballarat in Victoria, author of uh, The Power of Explicit Teaching and Direct Instruction. Greg has a substack if you just search for Filling the Pale. Uh, always has some uh, excellent comment on education and what's happening in the world. So hopefully that's given you a bit of an idea of what uh, direct instruction is and explicit direct instruction because teachers will be expected to be teaching in that way um, within the next few years. Um, And I just want to remind you about uh, the next episode, which is how to protect yourself in a classroom when there's children You've got a student who is gender transitioning, how to not lose your job. Um, As I mentioned before about a teacher in New Zealand losing their job for not using the the pronouns that the student wanted. Um, And and what you can do to protect your work uh, and make sure you stay out of court. If you have any experiences, past experiences you want to uh, let us know about, just uh, email markingtherole at substack.com. Marking the role at substack.com. You've been listening to Marking the Role. My name's Phil Dye. I'm going to leave you with the words of a teacher from the Cohen Academy um, to finish us off on direct instruction. See you next episode. For the big kids, they will probably be in their desks and you can still walk around the classroom. You don't have to do the script at the front of the classroom. You can walk and talk and just monitor, walk, talk, monitor. So we just like to make sure we're monitoring all the time, everyone's tracking, everyone's on task, let's keep moving forward. So we use an explicit instruction mode, so direct instruction EDI. So I do it, we do it, then you do it. So if I do it, the kids get to see it, we do it together, I'm still modeling it, now go off and do it on your own. So we know that the kids have got it.